Break Fix Podcast is all about capturing the living history of people from all over the autosphere, from wrench turners and racers to artists, authors, designers, and everything in between. Our goal is to inspire a new generation of petrol heads that wonder, how did they get that job or become that person? The road to success is paved by all of us because everyone has a story. For many of us, it all begins with a dream. Inspired by a poster on the wall, a small collection of Hot Wheels, a race you saw on TV. But for our guest, his dream began when he was 14 years old. His father purchased his dream car, a Dodge Viper. They started attending events together, learning more about the car, and meeting like-minded car enthusiasts. Joining the Viper Club of America opened him up to understand what Viper owners expected from mechanics, how they wanted to modify their cars, and what they wanted to be restored. And with that, a single dream realized. Havoc Performance was founded to offer a premier automotive business that would provide white glove treatment paired with constant communication and above standard industry expectations. And to talk to us about all things Vipers is Mike Kuchavik, founder of Havoc Performance. And joining me and filling in for Brad is my guest host and newly minted Viper owner, the one, the only Mr. Andrew Bank. So welcome both of you, Mike and Andrew, to Break Fix. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Eric. <laughs> Unfortunately, finally caved on my first podcast ever. Uh, I don't know how I feel about this. Dragged kicking and screaming. We're doing it together. At least there's a Viper in the background. 100%. And we will get into that in a little bit. So, Mike, we met recently at Watkins Glen. You were working on all things a Jaguar, and we got to talking about a bunch of different stuff. And then you mentioned something that really got my attention, which was the word Viper. And like you, I've been in love with the Viper since the very first one came out. And let's face it, it's the hottest car from the 90s that was designed in the 80s, right? Let's talk about all things Viper. But first, let's kick off with the origin of Havoc Performance, what you provide and where this evolution has gone from you having this poster on your wall to now being a Viper aficionado. It really started, like we said, kind of in that intro about when I was probably about 14 years old, my dad bought that Viper and it was just so much fun going out to the events and meeting all the people. They always joke around that like you buy the car because it's gorgeous, right? We love Vipers for what they are. They're beautiful cars, but you keep the car because of the people you meet through the clubs and the people are second to none on top of it. Growing up and getting to watch all that and meet all these great people and just watching some people's experiences when you go to shops and stuff and their cars sit outside in the rain, like when they're not getting worked on and all that jazz. It's like, I found that unacceptable even when I was 18. If you're going to have a car like that, you expect it to be treated like your baby. When I started to go, okay, well, like maybe I could start a business working on cars, doing that sort of thing. It was one of those where I wanted to make sure that I built a business that not only communicated, because that's the biggest issue with most shops is they don't tell them or give them realistic deadlines, or even if the deadline is pushed, they're not updated. So communication was the biggest part of it. And the other thing was taking care of their cars like, like a baby of mine, because at the end of the day, our cars are like our children, in a sense. I always wanted to make sure that they were clean, battery tenders while I had them in my shop, and they would never sit outside in the weather. They had to go outside in the sun, they'd sit out in the sun for a little bit, but they'd never be out in the rain or anything like that. 
as years went on, we were watching all this stuff happen and people would take them to shops and some shops would end up wrecking vipers because nobody really knew what to do. And some young guy would take it out. And if you floor these things in third gear, if you're at a high enough RPM, you can spin the tires if it's not the right condition. So it can get dangerous pretty quick. It's it's because it's got all the torquems, right? Yes. Peak torque is like 3000 <laughs> RPMs for the record. Like that's awesome. you hit 3000 and you're just about around peak torque. That's like a truck. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that too. It's great. Yeah, it's it also cool. sounds like one. <laughs> yes, it hey, hey, it sounds like two five cylinder Audis running together. That's all I know. That's for damn sure. <laughs> just stand on each side of the car and you'll figure that out. <laughs> so it all started off with like, I saw a need. And as I started to do like car collection management, even when I was younger, like a friend of ours had a car collection, like 50 cars. He's got a little bit of everything. And he watched me grow working out of my parents' garage. I was doing oil changes for him when I was like 16, 17. All my friends knew and most of my high school knew that I had like a two-car garage at my parents' place. So they'd all ship their stuff up to me and we'd work on it and figure it out. And brakes slowly turned into, oh, well, let's rebuild a motor. Let's put transmissions in. Let's do performance shocks and all that other fun stuff that continued to grow. And while the first guy that I was working with, he watched me grow and do all those things, gave me more and more responsibility. When I was a junior in college, I was actually going to Penn State at the time studying business and marketing. He met with the one Viper guy we met through the Viper Club and he said, who works on all your cars? Well, Mike Jr. did. So I started working for the Viper guy and 2015, he had six cars. As of today, we're up to 52 in his collection. Holy cow. That's something you mentioned to me at the track. You actually manage the second largest Viper collection in the US. Correct. The second largest. The first largest is down in Texas. And last I heard, they were at 94 Vipers, but they have like- Is this one person owner or is this like a company that owns them all? That's one person for both collections. Wow. Well, husband and wife. For one month, I had two Vipers in the scratch. One didn't run. Fuck was bust in the (laughs) coolant tank didn't uh, didn't fill up, but you know. That's okay. For a brief one month. Minor problems. Somewhere on that list. (laughs) (laughs) They're highly desirable. Very bottom And honestly, meeting those guys that have all those Vipers, you would never guess that they'd have more than one talking to them. And that's the one of the best parts about the Viper Club. I don't think we delved into what you offer at Havoc as service, products, et cetera, as part of your business. So do you want to expand upon that for our listeners? Just so like people know in general here, I handle anything and everything, right? So I've got a guy's car who basically wants it essentially fully restored. I've got body shops I work with. I've got guys who come in and do paint correction for us. We handle suspension components, motor builds, all that stuff. And we do some of the things in-house, but basically I wanted to design my business where you could drop your car off. And when you picked it up, everything would be done. If you wanted clear ball done, we would have it done for you and someone would come in and do it. If you wanted any of those services done, we could handle it. And it's expanded into doing pre-track inspection forms and going to track days with customers and making sure their cars are on tip-top shape. So it's really expanded into a bunch of different things. So it's not like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go get this engine work done and that's that. It's okay, I can go see him. We can set events up. We can get the whole car detailed and, you know, so a bunch of different things, but I have all my services too on the website if anyone wants to dive deeper into some of those things. But if you need something done nine times out of 10, we can handle it and you won't have to worry about the process. And you work on more than just Vipers. So that's always also good. So uh, yeah, we've done, <laughs> we've done a little bit of everything. Let's step back. Let's step back to 13 year old 
Mike Kuchavik and talk about the car that was hot on his list before the Viper came on the scene. What was the poster on your wall when you were 13 years old? <laughs> I had I had two posters. It was Mustangs and Vipers. And at the time, all in my mind that I would be able to afford was going to be a Mustang. So I loved Mustangs. And then Viper started to kind of creep up as more and more. And like one day, my dad just walks out and we're sitting in the garage and he goes, well, Mike, I did it. There's a Viper coming. And I was like, you're shitting me. There's no way in hell a Viper's coming. You're pulling my leg. And sure as hell, a trailer pulled up and dropped a Viper off in our driveway. And that was when the really, the, the real big dream of it was really happening. Gen color and year are the first one. Shall I make you guess? It's ah. iconic. Gen two, blue, white stripe. Oh, man, you weren't kidding. You have two Vipers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. it's the, uh, the Gen 2 iconic blue and white because it copied after the Shelby Daytona. That's right. And we'll, we'll expand upon I'm, that in a little bit. Those are crazy valuable right now. I just saw an alert on that. I get alerts every time the Vipers look because I've been looking for one my whole life. Yeah. Even though I just got one for the first time, I didn't unsubscribe from all these alerts. I got an email five minutes ago, $119,000. For a blue white stripe Gen 2. I can tell you right now, icecars.com. And I, of course, I deleted it because I was like, eh, a little out of my price range, just, just a little bit. I think it was in the 30s or less. It's wild how much these things are going for now. And it's, it's specifically the blue and white. Yeah. The reds and yellows, they're, getting, they're going for 50, 60, sometimes 70. But, and that's the Gen 2s. I paid less for the Gen 3s. Everyone fucking hates them for some reason. <laughs> well, you have the coupe. I know so. why. I know why. But yeah, that's the Mercedes. one thing I had to spring for. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. 28,470 miles. He's out of his mind. I just coordinated a deal a couple months ago for a all original blue and white 96 with like 5,000 miles and it was under 80. Wow. That's I just missed something. Look, Got it. There you oh, go. Yeah. Twin, twin turbo makes a big difference. Yeah. Twin turbo, 2,000 horsepower. Woo, okay. That car will kill you. <laughs> So let's get back to some more Viper origin stories, right? As I was joking, the best car from the 90s that was designed in the 80s, and a lot of people don't realize that much like Lee Iacocca is credited for being, you know, the godfather of the Mustang, even though he didn't pen a single line on that car, he was the guy that pushed the Mustang program forward, and it's been an iconic vehicle ever since. When he went to bat for Chrysler the second time, not the first time, the second time, to bring them back from the brink of complete destruction. There's a little bit of mystique and mystery behind the story of why Lee pushed for this Skunk Works project known as the Viper Project, got them a separate building, got his buddy Carol Shelby involved, things like that. So the plans for the Viper were already started in the 80s. And then when I saw it debut in 89 and it rolled out on the stage, it was one of those moments where it was like, this is the next best thing since sliced bread. Let's talk about those early Vipers, what they really were, where the idea came from. I mean, you're an expert in these cars. Let's kind of nerd out on the original 92, 93, 94 Gen 1 Vipers. So one of the big pushers for the Viper was Bob Lutz. There's a backstory to that that's not really ever talked about. Like I'll hear it at some of these like Viper team guys will tell us some stories. Every so often you hear it pop up, but one of the reasons that they built the Viper was Bob Lutz was would drive his Shelby Cobra to work and they would all razz him. He'd be like, all right, well, like build me a car then that's Dodge that can compete with my Cobra. Because right now, well, I'm going to drive a minivan. Dodge wasn't doing too much in the performance <laughs> world at the time. 
when it came to the original stuff, the main guys that were really pushing for it, they didn't have a budget. They didn't have any of that stuff. They had very little money to make these things happen. And let me tell you, they put a hell of a car together that can do many things that people don't realize. It's just crazy to see what they made back in 89 compared to even what they have now. It's one of those nice body styles that's almost timeless because if you take the wheels off of an RT10, target top, the originals, and you put a set yeah, of Gen 5 wheels spoke. on them. Yeah, if you get rid of those three spokes, you throw a new set of wheels on them. I've had people come up to me and say, is this car from like the 2000s? It's just crazy to see how these cars have been so timeless over the years. And there's a few other cars that are just like that. And I'll name drop them. The Gen 3 RX-7, the fourth Gen Supra, the Audi R8. It doesn't matter what year it is. If you look at it today, you're like, it still looks new. It still looks modern. And I think the Viper is is one of those designs. Granted, we got to discount the blocky Mercedes period there for a moment. But those (laughs) early Vipers, I mean, they are, to your point, very reminiscent of the Shelby Cobra. And obviously having Carol Shelby involved in helping to design the original Viper is really important to that part of the story. It comes at a terrible time for Chrysler though. I mean, they're in dire straits, you know, on the brink of financial ruin and here they are building quote unquote, a supercar. How does that all work? (laughs) And honestly, that's probably why the budgets were so tough and all the like crazy things that I know we'll get into later about some of these other stories I get to tell you that they made happen and did the things that they did because the money wasn't there, but somehow they got through this process of things to make these cars and give them all this publicity, which I really think helped them in the long run. They didn't, I don't think they made a ton of money on the cars. One of the reasons why they probably stopped, but in the beginning, as far as the performance world of stuff goes, you like you said, they were designed in the eighties and they lasted through the nineties and did a hell of a job doing it. And there was a gap there too, between the initial prototype rollout in 89 to -hmm. when the first one went on sale, the very first Vipers in 92, that's a three-year gap. So they Mm -hmm. spent that time refining it. The first Vipers that launched don't exactly look like the prototype (laughs) either. You know, they've been modified. They were slightly bigger, you know, things like that. They had to add some creature comforts, although there were very few, which we'll talk about in those early cars. (laughs) They added windows and a roof and... A doorknob. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that stuff is all totally useless. Didn't need for that first one. <laughs> Did the Cobra have any of that stuff? No. So the Viper didn't have it either, right? I didn't need it. No AC, none of that. <laughs> Coming from the Cobra, we go to the Viper to continue with that lineage. It all, it all kind of gels together. It's obvious to us as petrol heads, but it might not be obvious to somebody else. Like, I don't, I don't get the history. So we're going to fill in those gaps. And I remember one story that was kind of fun about the Skunk Works project. As they were putting it together, Lee Iacocca said, hey, go take this building over there. Go work on it on your own. And I read this in his memoirs. And he was saying about how guys were like basically taking the the corporate minivans and running over to other parts of the campus and basically, quote unquote, borrowing, we'll call it, equipment, computers, whatever they could get in the back of the minivan and bringing it over to the Skunk Works building. Roy Schoberg, he was the one overseeing the project at the time, right? He was the one that was building a team. So he was the one who put like Dick Winkles together, Tom Gale together, all those guys that made this Viper happen in the beginning. The team of guys were like, Roy, you need to get a minivan as your company car. He goes, why the hell would I want a minivan as my company car? And he goes, we're going to take the seats out of it. And because you're corporate, your car isn't inspected when it leaves the plants. So we're going to drive to the other plants that we know aren't using computers and aren't using all the drafting stuff. And we're just going to take it. We're going to put it in the van and we're going to move it to where we need it to. So we can use that stuff to develop this car because we don't have any money to do so. 
So that story is actually true, and it's rather hilarious that that actually happened. Because I mean, it, nowadays, <laughs> there's so much paperwork involved to do anything. Back then, they were like, ah, yeah. fuck it. Like, let's just do this. It's ingenious. And, you know, it speaks to something that Lee talked about in his first autobiography when he went to Chrysler the first time, is that even though he was a Ford man and he had been at Ford forever, he said that there was always something about the Chrysler engineers, that they were always thinking outside of the box. They were really a cut above. They just were performing surgery, as I like to call it, with a spoon and a screwdriver, right? They just never had the tools to bring these dreams to reality. And so they made a lot of, let's face it, a bunch of turds, right? Yep. But, and there was some cool stuff in the 70s and the muscle car era, but there was a, this, this middle-aged period of Chrysler where you're like, I don't want to talk about any of this stuff. <laughs> and then along comes the Viper and you're like, whoa. And we can nerd out upon that, but there's some other, I think, myth busting we need to do along the way. And that's the one you hear all the time, well, that's just a Lamborghini V10. They didn't even develop that engine themselves or the other side. It's just a truck motor and it came out of an agricultural piece of equipment, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So what's the truth? The truth is at the time, they did not have the molds or the technology to really make an all aluminum V10. Dick Winkles at the time did go over to Lamborghini because he was one of the head designers of the Viper motor. And they worked with Lamborghini to figure out how to make the motor run cool enough, work well enough being all aluminum because Lamborghinis was making aluminum blocks at the time. So it's not truly a Lamborghini motor because they took the basic design kind of like from the trucks or even from the V8s and just added two cylinders because that's all, it's really two inline fives essentially. So they used that platform, took some information from Lamborghini and then made it happen in the process. So on one end, it's not on the other. It's kind of dead center as far as how that goes. Interesting. So it's a little bit of both. So everybody's a little bit of both. Right. So everybody's kind of right. That so. applying to both the first gen and the third gen ones. I know they changed a lot about the engine between the, uh, the what was it, 2003 remake when they went from gen two to gen three. Gen two and gen three motors are different. Ironically enough, you can put gen three heads on top of a gen two motor. The head gaskets are the same. Mm. And so there are a lot of similarities. The design is kind of the same. At the end of the day, they are all kind of the same motor. They just made improvements through the years. So there's definitely like a redesign because they went up to the 8.3 in the Gen 3s versus uh, like the 8 liter. So they- 8.4? The 8.3 is the Gen 3. The 8.4 is the Gen 4. So 08 to 10 okay. is Gen uh, is the 8.4. That's just, I know it's written on my little intake thing. It's 505, 8.4. He's, uh, he's fact checking. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm fact checking myself. How much did they change it to- in 2008, when they made the Gen 4, and they bumped it up 100 horsepower, they went from 510 to 605, 600 flat, and they literally, you know, they didn't change anything about the frame of the car, they just changed the intake and the manifold, from my understanding, and they went, well, these aren't selling, we got to do something, and bump it up 100 horsepower, and make a cooler, you know, cooler hood with the three open vents instead of like the flatted. The displacement only went from an 8.3 to an 8.4 from the Gen 3s, which was 03 to 2006. And then the Gen 4s came out in 08 and the 08 to 10 was an 8.4 liter size block. But what they changed was they added like a variable timing essentially with the cam. By doing that, it was creating more power. VTEC, yo, you got VTEC. Yeah, it's, I mean, kind of. <laughs> Vanos, maybe it's more <laughs> like Vanos. Basically, it's like a variable intake sort of situation where you were able, they were able to get some more power out of it. Yeah, Volkswagen introduced something like that in 2003 on the R32s as well, where they can change the length of the runners and all this kind of crazy stuff using vacuum and, and solenoids and all sorts of stuff that was prone to break, you know, so it was awesome. Yeah. So speaking of prone to break... <laughs> 
Let's talk a little bit about the early cars because it's kind of still staggering to put it in perspective. You're talking a quasi 500 horsepower car in the early 90s. I mean, yep. even the F40s and other iconic supercars of that time weren't making that kind of power. Like this was the muscle car of the modern times, right? And if you think about it, what things did the Vipers not come with? Let's start with that. And then how have they evolved and what is still so on, many. let's say, let's, <laughs> let's say what's still on a current Viper, last gen Viper, that's a carryover from the originals. Did anything make it all the way through every generation? They all stayed manual. You could never get them in an automatic. That's and hugely awesome. Yeah. So that was one of the big things that uh, they wanted was it had to stay raw, right? So they always kept them V10s and they always kept them manual transmissions. From 92 to 2010, there was no traction control, no stability control. It was only until the government mandated traction control, stability control in the cars, which was what happened with the Gen 5. (laughs) So like the government stepped in and made that have to happen. Or like in 2001, they brought in ABS. So like in 2001, and newer Vipers will have, and we'll have ABS modules in them. Besides that, everything from 92 up to 2000 will have, uh, sorry, 2000, they brought the ABS in. 92 to 99, there's no ABS. And which years did they actually have door handles and door locks and windows as, as Andrew alluded to? <laughs> um, so, I mean, once they brought out the GTS model, so the coupe, they had door handles on the coupes. So in 96, they started to add door handles to the coupe, well, to the RT10. So like they have this weird 96 and a half RT10 that like some of them didn't necessarily have exterior door handles. They were just still, you reached inside and grabbed the interior handle. So it's like the half year RT10 stuff that didn't have roll-up windows. It didn't have necessarily have handles yet. So it's like that 97 era that they started to incorporate windows into the RT10s that weren't like in the trunk that you had to put in. You still had the tops in the trunk that would go on. But, and that was another crazy story, that looked, right? Like, like a hideous little top hat. I, I hate the look of the thing. It just yep. looked like a like an old a man with like a fake hair piece on. And yep. you could see it, it doesn't belong. Like he didn't glue it on all the way. It's as seems. Well, and so it's the one thing that always bugged me about the RC10. If, if you do 55 miles an hour, you won't get wet. Just so you know. Um, but <laughs> honestly, that aerodynamic. <laughs> Matt, think about yeah. that. Science. <laughs> but it was another one of those situations where somebody in corporate was driving an RT10 and it started to rain in Detroit. So they were like, these things need roofs. We need to make sure that these have roofs because I don't want to get stuck in the rain if I'm out. So that's why they ended up adding them into the fold up into the trunk. Whereas to my knowledge, Cobras didn't have any roof system. It was, you better drive it while it's sunny or you're getting wet. Or they had those sort of tonneau covers like the old Lotuses would have that, you know, they okay. would use those button rivets to yep. like, you know, clip it on. It's like a leather cover. That was typical of British cars. Cause you got to remember the Cobra itself started out as an AC going way back before Shelby got his hands on it. So there was a British roadster before yep. you know, they, they put the Ford heart in it and the Ford drivetrain and all that kind of stuff. The Cobra kept that. And there's actually a really great video, which we'll post in the show notes that Jay Leno did during COVID of his 93, I believe it is RT10, which he he gets into this whole debate about whether he's the first one to own a black Viper because they came red up until that point. And there's another gentleman that contests that he got his first and all this back and forth. But what he ends up doing on the episode is going through all the amenities 
or I guess lack thereof on those early Vipers. And he lays out in the his garage floor at one point. He's like, this is all the stuff I got to do to make sure I don't get wet. Right. And, and, and he lays it all. It's really cool. And you're, and I'm looking at it going, this is like all old British roadster stuff. So it's kind of neat that they kept that. And eventually, obviously that went away, but you said the manual transmissions. And the question I got from somebody recently was what manual is in the Viper? In the Gen 1s and 2s, it's a T56. Sorry, in the Gen 3s, it's also a T56. And then the Gen 4s and Gen 5s use the T6060s. Okay, so no ZF transmissions, nothing Mercedes-based or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So, okay. They're all Tremec. All Tremec. Nice. A lot of guys will find Viper Transes and use them for like V8 Chevys and other types of conversions Mm -hmm. or converting the the truck, which we'll talk about in a little bit. In terms of chassis, obviously that evolved, especially during the Mercedes period. They got really kind of big, you know, things like that. But is there anything that is a, a heritage piece that has made it from the first gen Viper all the way through the last ACRs in 2016, 2017? So like I said, like the big thing about all of that was they wanted to keep the car as raw as possible. Some people wanted to put automatics in them from corporate and all that other fun jazz. And they basically said, no, they have to stay manual. They have to stay the V10. They have to stay rear wheel drive. And we want to keep it as race car-esque as possible, right? So they wanted to keep the nannies Mm -hmm. off the cars and make these things be able to be track monsters at the end of the day. And then if you broke down, you'd be easy enough to fix up the track if you needed to. The thing that really held true the car the whole time was the fact that they only came in manual transmissions through the entire generations. When they switched from the Gen 4 to Gen 5, they went, well, basically a three-year gap from 2010 to 2013, where SRT took over and they were no longer Dodge Viper, they were SRT Viper. At that point, they scrapped it. I mean, that, it didn't look anything like the original. I mean, they modeled the body off of the original Gen 2 GTS coupe. They yep. did the swooping you know, hood again. That was the exotic sideways opening one rather than this garbage one that opens up, you know, for the <laughs> boring regular hood. I don't know. I love those ones. I got to do a ride along with Eugene at one of our events at New Jersey Motorsports Park. Unfortunately, we had a little incident where the uh, oil cap was not screwed on all the way after he filled it back up and it blew smoke and oil all over the engine. And I uh, legitimately thought I was dying because he had an ACR and he was going faster than I'd ever been on the track. And all of a sudden, we're seeing black smoke everywhere. And I'm just in the passenger seat like, cool, this guy's about to kill me. That's cool. And I, I played a little bit too much GTA 5, GTA. And I, I was like, I know what black smoke coming out of the engine means. That means the car's about to explode in about, you know, five seconds. We pull over, it's just oil and everything. But I said, it was an incredibly memorable ride along. And I'm holding a spot. The, the poster you have right behind you, that one with white stripes, That'll be the next one. Might take That's me a little longer, but addition, I'll be happy with this one. But they're now. gorgeous. <laughs> but like you were saying too, they wanted to try to keep the clamshell hoods, especially as the design changed through the years. And that was, again, something else that they kind of tried to keep. But at the end of the day, even if you look at all Vipers, the front ends, in my opinion, all have that kind of same mean design. The headlights are a little bit different. I mean, the, the, the Gen 5s and the Gen 2s are like, to me, the Gen 5 is the new version of the Gen 2, and which is one of the things that I really like about those designs. So as far as things that made it through all the years, I think it's really just like trans motor. And they kept, they tried their hardest to keep the rawness of those cars. If the Gen 5 is the new Gen 2, does that mean that the Gen 3 is the new Copperhead? So let's talk about the Copperhead for a second, shall we? <laughs> That was a slight Is that like jab. the Mamba edition? So oh, I mean, the, there's a million editions. You mean? I had all the, these special ones that I'm like, what's special about the Copperhead? That's what I wanted to ask. Let's let Mike fill us in on what the Copperhead so, is. 
The Copperhead was either a Cooper or a convertible, and depending on the year, it would have a dash plaque, it would have orange stitching, it would have that copper color, and it would have those five-spoke polished chrome-looking wheels. Outside of that, it was like a badge that they put on it, just like a lot of the other cars they did. <laughs> That's true of the Viper. I'm going to stretch oh, your imagination, okay. right? Where are we at? We are at the concept Dodge Copperhead, if you recall, which was developed in 1997 as a one-off prototype, as a variant of the Viper. It has a very squarish front end. Looks like something out of Batman, the animated series. If you search, actually seen it. There is apparently like one. (laughs) And that's why I joke that the Gen 3 is the new version of the Copperhead because it has kind of similar body lines, right? If you think about it. Yeah. I mean, the taillights look exactly hideous. There's like, also you, this front end looks like a uh, P, not PC Cruiser, a uh, Plymouth Prowler, only it has it's not open wheel. <laughs> it's got fenders, exactly. And there's a third little car, and I mean little, that you add to this equation known as the Demon, which we talked about in an earlier episode, which was designed as a Miata killer and also has <laughs> related articles. <laughs> And also has very Viper-like lines to it as well. So that's kind of another kind of sub-variant of the Viper family there. If we're playing a little bit of Viper family tree, Viper trivia. Speaking of that, Mike, what are some other great little interesting tidbits of information or stories or anecdotes about the Viper and its lineage that you'd like to share? So one of my favorites has to be the turn signals on the Gen 1s and 2s. Because we've always talked about how they didn't have enough money to be really building these cars, right? They had to cut corners as best they could to make things cheap and make this car happen because they all wanted it to, they all had the passion to, but how are they going to do it? And they were originally needing to make the tooling for turn signals for these bumpers. Basically, Chrysler came back and said, well, it's going to be 250000 aside to make the tooling, and then you can make all the lights you need. Well, Roy said, that's not happening. Go down to the trailer store and find a good <laughs> set of lights that will fit and look good in this bumper. So they went down, they found a set of trailer lights and the <laughs> turn signal lights in the front bumpers of the Gen 1 and 2s are actually trailer lights. So they took the trailer lights, used the tooling from them and saved a crap ton of money so they could put it elsewhere. Classic parts bin. <laughs> oh yes, very parts much Parts so. card to excess. I mean, even my key and the key fob are the exact same ones out of a Dodge Caravan from that year. <laughs> the vents identical i mean i looked it up i'm sure you have seen how how much these things are cheap plastic so that first viper i got everything was broken like every interior piece of crack was so brittle and stuff did not hold up to 15 years of even i don't know if it was garage kept or not but the interior is not what you buy this car for it is definitely minimalist correct at that but uh, it sounds fantastic even if it does sound a little bit like the old cub cadet tractor i used to move my parents <laughs> lawn with uh, it still sounds pretty good i like I, I, the first time driving i'm in sick gear and i i rev it i just hear whoa, 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 and i'm just like <laughs> okay that's not what i was expecting this to sound like i'm not i can't say i'm disappointed or anything but well, yeah. hey, six gear, you're probably at like a thousand RPMs. So 90 miles an hour, 1,750 <laughs> RPMs. It's, it's wild. I'm like, this thing, it's got so much to give. I mean, a ton of displacement and, uh, you know, first order of business. I got to look for an exhaust. Actually, Mike, you got to give me suggestions. Even if it's later on, I got to know Corsa, Barilla, like, well, what do I get for this? Because that's a brand. 
I don't know. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I swear I saw it on a forum. That's available I, I on was the Fiat surprised. version. Of Python, all right? yeah. I was surprised when we had it up on the list that the pipes, they went down, crossed around the back and came out. So the, the left exit pipe coming out of the side here is actually coming from the right side of the engine. And it crosses behind the passenger foot, like behind your seats, which yep. to me seems like a ton of excess weight, a ton of excess, you know, it, it just seems like they could have straight piped it like coming right out of the side. I'm sure there's EPA regulations and stuff, but yeah, yeah well, I, I don't know if you have any insight on that. That came down to sound. I'm sure if you've ever driven that thing in the summer, it gets very hot in that cabin because you're completely surrounded by exhaust. I definitely have a burn on my leg to prove that. <laughs> oh, you've got the snake bite. Oh, is that what that's called? <laughs> I've yeah. been bitten. You've been bit by the snake because you reached the leg uh -huh. out and you burn it on the side sill. Oh, man. So, so this is actually really good tips for understanding how the Viper is built, what you should look for if you're buying one. Obviously, <laughs> Andrew just went through this experience and I think he <laughs> it was a trial by fire in some cases. So let's talk about if you're shopping for a Viper, Mike, what should you be looking out for? What are some telltale signs? What are things that are known to go wrong? You know, some things that people might be afraid, oh, it's got that issue. I don't want to deal with that. Or it's something super simple. It's actually really cheap to fix. So let's kind of go with some of these buyer's tips on a Viper. Depending on the generation is going to really depend on what the uh-ohs or the things that were problematic. From 22 to even up to 2017, the oil cooler lines almost always leak. It's just a matter of time. They don't leak bad. I haven't seen any stock ones like blow out yet, but it is something that you eventually need to address. Again, nothing that's too big of a deal. You should worry about oil levels. If you go look at a guy's car and the oil is below the low point, maybe you should steer away from it. Again, it can be fixed. Anything on these cars can be fixed. That's the nice part about being built out of parts bins. You just have to figure out where the parts actually came from and cross <laughs> it to something else. Like on the Gen 4s, the rear lift hatch, right? There's a button in the trunk to open the rear trunk. The Viper part is like $200. You get the same exact button out of a Chrysler minivan for $15 on Amazon. There's a lot of minivan part numbers, parts though. on this sports car. What, what's going oh, on yes. here? <laughs> You'd be surprised. So it really just comes down to the generation, right? Like the Gen 1s, they were so rudimentary. There wasn't any creature comfort. So like the dashboards get super sticky because they just wear out, unfortunately, and they get scratched up and just not look great. So that could be something that would steer somebody away. But again, they could be refinished and redone. But the Gen 1s were honestly really solid as far as that stuff goes. The suspension was just a little bit more rudimentary. So it was easier to essentially kill yourself in because if you didn't know what you were doing, you could hurt yourself because again, no nannies, none of that. So the gen ones were pretty solid. Unfortunately though, ethanol and the fuel nowadays eats away at the fuel hoses inside the fuel pump, which then eventually causes them to split on the gen ones, not the end of the world. Fuel pump assembly comes out, you rebuild it and everything's okay again. So the gen ones, the big thing to look out for is when you turn that key and you crank it over, if it takes a little bit to crank over, it probably needs a fuel pressure regulator because it's not holding the fuel up into the rails and your fuel system probably needs to be rebuilt. That's the biggest issue that I've seen so far on the gen ones outside of like head gaskets will eventually go but from a 92 are you including like the ones up to like the 2002 the gen one and two to me are so similar that it's hard for me to differentiate I, when does it become gen two is it 1997 that it became gen two or 1996 uh, when the gts came out in 96 it became the second generation okay depending on where they were in that year is going to depend on the kind of fuel pressure regulators that were in the fuel buckets 
but it's mostly the Gen 1s that I've seen all the issues with, at least thus far. Is that because um, there was a changeover in the minivans as well? They went from the caravan to the grand caravan or something? Is that why? It um, so the regulators are actually the same as ones that are out of like a Dodge Durango. And like the fuel <laughs> floats for the Gen 1s are the same out of the Dodge Grand Caravan. I can buy the whole assembly for 80 bucks. But if I find a fuel float out of a Viper, I'm going to spend like 300 Oh, geez. As far as the Gen 2 stuff goes, oil cooler lines were solid. The big things to look out for now that they're old are the cooling system hoses, just because rubber wears out. The power steering pump pulleys are huge because they were plastic. It's plastic onto, mounted onto a metal shaft. It separates, it splits, it cracks, and then now you lose your serpentine belt, your cooling system, and you're stuck on the side of the road and you're pissed off all because a $10 part broke. But overall, like the Gen 2s were pretty solid outside of like a couple, you know, maintenance things. They didn't really have too many problems. Bottom ends were pretty solid. They eventually switched over in 2000 to like the cream puff motors where they switched out the cams and they got rid of the forged pistons. When they switched over to that stuff, they didn't have any, at least from what I've seen so far, they haven't had any like bearing issues or anything like that. They just changed the cam up a little bit to meet some EPA stuff. But overall, the Gen 2s are really solid. So that's kind of nice. The one thing to look out for too, as far as paint goes on the Gen 2s is the side sills are aluminum, right? So they corrode from the backside, then bubble the paint and then like rust through. People think it's all from heat. Well, it's not actually all from heat. It's from corrosion on the backside. But everyone says online, oh, it's because the cats are so hot. It plays a part, but it's not necessarily true. The early cars, were they ahead of their time? They were at least OBD1, correct? Or not? The early model Gen 1 stuff is OBD1. As soon okay. as they switch over to 96, when everything had to go OBD2, it's OBD2. I mean, okay. it's rudimentary OBD2, but it's OBD2. You can hook a scanner up and read some things. And on the later cars, the three, fours, and five, some buying tips if you're looking at that, especially the threes, now that you know Andrew's already gotten his. It was it was whole thing. I've been looking for one of these my whole life. I had a Lotus Elise, tracked it for a year. And then, you know, COVID happened and used cars started skyrocketing. And the first thing to go up were those specialty cars. And I looked at the price of Elise's go up 40, 50%. And I took it. I got rid of that. And that's when I knew it was like, I had to have a Viper. And the first Viper I looked at in person was a 2002. So Gen to final edition coupe, red with white stripes. It was the car that I had a poster of as a kid. Unfortunately, it did not work out. The guy had three in his garage, young guy. He had bought three. He knew the market was going up. He had a blue with white stripes. He had a red RT10 Gen 1. And he had this Gen 2 final edition they bought from a guy. I was so upset because he had the title in someone else's name and I went to get financing and they wouldn't follow through on it. You were mentioning the fuel pump getting messed up. And even the one that he had on a battery maintainer, it wouldn't start. It just like turned over 10, 15 seconds, which is excruciatingly long amount of time. Yeah. And it finally ran. But I ended up with this Gen 3 off of carsandbids.com okay. after buying another Gen 3 from a Florida dealer who told me this car is in good condition. I, I talked to him on the phone. I see it on Auto Trader and it gets here. And then, you know, we were kind of texting about this one the other day because I got to, you know, I got to do this front control arms. But this other one that I got, oh my God, it was trash. Coolant tank was cracked, so it wasn't even holding coolant. So it shows up with a check engine light on. And I think, oh, you know, it just needs coolant. Fill the coolant up. It drains out within like 100 miles of driving. <laughs> so I get it to my buddy's shop, put it on a lift. 
And he's got no O2 sensors, a straight pipe exhaust. It's shooting flames out the side, which I must admit was the coolest fucking thing ever. And it sounded great, but downstream O2 sensors removed. So, you know, they put resistors in, both of them burned out, or the right side one burned out. He goes underneath and he's starting to rub everything and there's oil everywhere. And we're like, what is this? Well, it was either power steering fluid, oil, or coolant. Couldn't discern what it was. There was three types of fluid in there. Uh, within five days of owning it, six days, the clutch just went to the floor one morning when I went to start it and I couldn't get it in or out of gear. Turn on a first game chunk, but yeah, I got rid of it. The guy took it back. He paid me for it. And uh, I ended up winning this one on you know the auction set a couple of days later. I love it. I think a part of me will always be disappointed and get that Gen 2. Gen 2's arguably, I know Eric had, he had a lot to say to me when I was <laughs> <laughs> I told him I got the Gen 3 because, you know, it's uh, it's Mercedes, it's crap, it's parts bin car. And, uh, you know, I, I love the Gen 2 as much as anyone else. I'm still happy with it. But, you know, we're going to be talking in the future because there's going to be, I'm sure, many things that need to be replaced. He's <laughs> saying is he wants, he's going we'll, to try to make your Gen 3 cool. It's, it's a hard task, but he's going to try to make it cool. <laughs> all right. Turbo, supercharger, what are we doing? <laughs> let's start smaller first like you can make a good amount of power with like heads and cam out of those cars you know i mean what you started out with 505 our last head and cam package put down 614 to the wheels which is technically a little bit more power than a gen 5. okay so it's just it's basically making the changes that they did for the gen 4 in 2008 and what is a bigger intake or you'd say just the cams bolt them on still so trying to learn that's all that's <laughs> no, okay. I can teach you. I'm fine with that. So basically with like the heads and cam stuff, we port and polish the heads. We go larger intake and exhaust valves. So it flows a lot more air. It goes headers, exhaust. We keep the stock intake, stock injectors. We do upgrade the fuel pump, but outside of that, you add those couple of different things and you get to put down a bunch more power. That is the recipe and for I most assume you American gotta, muscle you gotta cars. Tune it. Yeah, of course you have to tune it. Yeah. <laughs> I got a ZL1 that fed my track car recently and I bought it from a guy who had a intake, a pulley, an exhaust, no tune. And I took that shit to New Jersey Motorsports Park and threw codes on every session for fuel pump issues, this and that. And I, and I finally take it through shop. And the guy goes, this is the stock ECU. And I'm like, what? He was like, that guy put all that stuff into it and then drove it like a grandpa and never once had an issue with it running lean. And I got to find out on the track. So <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm savvy. Now I know to get stuff well, tuned. But. <laughs> I'm happy you're learning some things through time here. As we move into those Gen 3s, obviously you see more and more Bosch-like stuff because of this portion of Chrysler's history, Daimler, you know, Mercedes had taken over the company. So you probably see a lot more German type of parts in there. And then obviously later they sold to Fiat when the Gen 4s and 5s came out. So then it was FCA at that point. And, and that's when the redesigns come in. And I will say across the board, at Chrysler, I thought Fiat did an excellent job redesigning cars inside and out. But what we haven't talked about yet is what to look out for if you were buying one of these later edition Vipers, the Gen 4 or Gen 5. So what's on the buyer's guide there? The typical thing to really look for on the Gen 4 is the oil cooler lines like we've discussed. The Gen 4s were pretty solid and they do have issues with window regulators. The window regulators through most of the generations were kind of crappy. The glue they used weren't wasn't good, all that fun stuff. So the Gen 4s were fortunate enough to get the swinging pickup upgrade from the Gen 3s so it didn't have as many oiling issues when you were on the track. So overall, the Gen 4s were pretty solid as far as that stuff goes until you there were certain modifications that people could do that would 
screw things up. But as far as stock goes, they were overall really solid as long as you weren't going to be having misfires or anything like that, which, you know, you should change your spark plug wires out and all that stuff. We as car guys know that that's normal maintenance. Overall, the Gen 4s were really solid. They didn't really seem to have any bearing issues, of course, unless you were really hard tracking them or running them low on oil. The, just the big thing were really the oil cooler lines on those and the window regulators were super common. And of course, the typical interior issues that all of them had, but overall they didn't. that one of the better ones. Yeah. Yeah, the dash that cracks and pieces that fade and peel and then you need that stuff restored but the gen 4s are overall pretty solid the subwoofer oh my god i you don't love that i thought it was blown the box is so shaky that even when i i took as much apart as i could and i shoved foam in there and it still rattles and i go online to see how to fix it you got to remove the whole piece that goes underneath the door still up behind the car and covers the box to get in there and stop the rattling. And it involves taking the seats out and this and that. And I'm like, if you have any suggestions on how to make that subwoofer enclosure stop sounding like literally a busted old, you know, I Honda Civic. I tell you exactly how it. to fix it. All right. Sounds like it's probably boring. We could talk about that offline, <laughs> but you know, I will greatly appreciate it. Cause man, I'm trying to listen to my bass, get amped up for the gym and driving somewhere. And I'm like, all right, face down to negative eight, <laughs> and it's still rattling. I mean, who needs <laughs> a like stereo? A who needs a stereo when you have a When V10? I can listen to that truck engine, that that, that beautiful tractor. <laughs> it's a moan thing. It's more like, but that's okay. So the Gen 5s are still pretty new. So I'm assuming they haven't lived long enough lives yet to really come up with some major problems, you know, if you were so buying one, right? There was some major problems. Um, there was, believe it or not, it was common, but not that common sort of problem, right? Everyone online, if they had a bearing problem, everyone had a bearing problem. A lot of guys were having bearing issues, but the other issue of that is, is if you don't monitor your motor oil, you probably are going to have motor issues or bearing issues. If you let the car sit for three or four months and all the oil drains back into the pan and you start that thing up, it's a dry start and it's going to wear the bearings out more and more over time. On top of it, they switched over to a 0.20 or a 0.40 for the stock motor oil, which I think was like a marketing aspect because they were going to start using Penn's oil. But when you talk to the engineers and everything else, all of the cars that leave my shop get at least 5.40 in them, if not 15.40 or 15.50, depending on what the application is. Because that 0.8 oil is just too thin and it can cause some of that premature bearing wear over time. And the bearing wear was pretty big on those. In 17, there was some like hush-hush things that were kind of happening with some of the diffs where the wrong fluid may have been used and it was blowing diffs up. Of course, it was all covered under warranty. But if you know, if you buy a 17 and there's 200 miles on it, change your diff fluid because you don't want to blow a diff up just in case. That's kind of a bad thing. A little bit more common issues that guys had was the bearing issues on the Gen 5s and like the diff issues. But outside of that, there hasn't, at least from what I've seen thus far, from all the collection management I've been doing, I haven't seen too many issues with the Gen 5s outside of the typical, hey, your oil cooler line's leaking, or we're just going to change all the fluids out and all that jazz. So I know this sounds like a redundant question, but it's a professional opinion question here. So yeah. to kind of wrap up this thought, because there are five different generations of the Viper and they all have their idiosyncrasies and everything else. 
But you, Mike, if you were going to recommend somebody buy a Viper today, their first Viper. Andrew doesn't get a vote on this one. <laughs> the best year, maybe the worst year, Targa or Coupe, what would you pick? What would you tell uh, somebody? I would pick a early model Gen 2. So the early models were 96 to 99. That would be what I get into for a couple different reasons. One, it was the iconic Viper. So even if it's not blue and white, it still was like the iconic Viper. Two, I'm 6'4", and I don't fit in these cars as it is. The Gen 2s, I fit in the most. I can actually see out of the windshield, even though my eyes are up towards the top. When I drive the later generations, I have to duck my head down so I can see through the windshield and see the lights. So for me, the size of the car matters. And the Gen 2, to me personally, has the most amount of space. And in my personal opinion, I like the Gen 2s the most because they also seem to be the most reliable as long as you maintain them well enough. And if you ever want to go add more power, the Gen 2, Gen 3s are really easy to add power without going turboed and everything else. And it gives you still that raw feeling. I'll never forget when I first started driving, when he would let me take his Mustang out, my dad always told me this traction control button, if you turn it off and it doesn't kill you, I will. <laughs> so like as a kid, when I was really young, I asked, what's that button do, dad? He turns it off and we go through an intersection <laughs> freaking sideways. And he goes, that's what that does. And you will never turn that button off. <laughs> and ironically enough, now I get to test drive Vipers that are 600 to 1200 horsepower that don't have any traction control so i need to know what i'm doing let's do this because andrew has evolved a lot as many of our members in our audience will attest you know he's grown a lot as his diy shade tree mechanic you know he moved from let's say production cars I mean, he had the he had the lotus which is considerably an exotic but hey it's a celica engine so we can we can live with that Cheaper but you exotic. move into this supercar you move into this supercar territory, things change. Immediately there's a tax. Like we joke about the, you know, the M tax and the, you know, the Porsche tax and things like that. So you have the cost, like you said, of Viper parts, but then there's also, you have to have a specialty quote unquote mechanic work on these vehicles. Or is that a myth? Are these cars actually workable by the average, let's say guy that knows how to turn a wrench or two? Like how hard is it to work on a Viper? I know I sent Mike this picture, but that's exactly what I was trying to talk to him about because I'm looking at stuff and I'm like, cool, it needs new uh, sway bar inlinks. It needs uh, new control arms. And I got another shop to quote me $800 per control arm. He didn't even quote me on the sway bar inlinks. And I looked them up $250 a piece. And that is a, what, $50 part? My buddy's got an FRS. My buddy Andrew, he was at the okay. track. He just had to replace his. And I'm like... He, he was doing his uh, coilovers and he broke a sway bar and like he got it overnighted for like, I think he said 30 bucks, 40 bucks. You and can get the end links. On I'm looking at for like 30 bucks. All right. Once again, we're going to be having another conversation soon. So I really got uh, to, we're, glad we we're, got to you know, get this rapport before I started asking uh, you to work on my car. <laughs> well, we're also going to check with our friends over at PowerFlex to see if they make anything for the Viper too. That's a one and done solution when we go down that road. I mean, you absolutely know within the next year, I'm coming to you to do the headers, everything. Dude, uh, yeah, 600 horsepower, that's good. 500, <laughs> nah, that's not enough. That's, that's not enough. We got to make as much as, you know, what I'll do is I'll get that Gen 4 hood with the bigger vents and after, after I get the 600 horsepower. Because then I'm not opposed to then I can be like, well, it is a 2006. It has the hood, but it also has the power a little bit more. There you so. go. <laughs> You got me, you got me excited. So for those of us that aren't ballers like Andrew, going back to my original question, if I don't have kids, (laughs) (laughs) 
But if I wanted to turn wrenches kidding, on kidding, my, kidding. if I wanted to turn wrenches on my own Viper, how difficult would it be? My personal side says, oh yeah, they're really hard because that's what I do for a living. But honestly, at the end of the day, they're very easy cars, <laughs> right? Like to put it in perspective, if you had to change an oil pan gasket at the track, you could easily do it. They're simple pushrod motors, and a lot of guys know through the years how pushrod motors work. The timing is literally the crankshaft and the camshaft. You line those two up. It's two pieces. It's not four or five pieces that you have to line up with belts and crap. So they're all pretty easy to work on, and most things you don't really need a lift for. Again, they make it easier. The shocks come out pretty easy. The shocks are two bolts, unless you're going to like remote reservoir and everything else. But overall, they're pretty easy to work on. There's definitely some nuances that like it would help if you would ask some questions. So if there are people that do work on their own car and they want to call me and I can try to direct them in the right direction, I'm more than happy to do that. If you want to work on your own stuff, I actually kind of encourage it because again, it keeps the camaraderie together and people really, some guys really like to wrench on their own cars. And it's really not that hard at the end of the day. I also joke around and say, it's like big boy Legos, like if you pull one motor apart, you can put one together. It's like, as long as you put it back the same way it came in, then you're okay. Well, I'm secretly asking, knowing that Andrew's going to come to my garage and inevitably I'm going to end up working on his Viper when you, when you can't, I was Mike, say, so. you said You said you were, you were down for, you said, I've never worked on a Viper and I would like to, and, and for everyone listening, I wanted you to know how good of a guy Mike is because I had an issue with this one. Now I had an issue with the other one too, but this one, two days after I got it, I go, you know, I take my girl out we go to brunch, driving back, car starts bucking like crazy. And it happened the day before. And I was like, oh, cool. Something's going to go wrong, but I'm going to ignore it until I actually know what it is because no lights, whatever. And I get stranded on the side of the highway and I throw codes and it ended up being the crankshaft position sensor. I go online, nothing, can't find anything. I found a foreign version of the uh, service manual, one page at a time, no way to search it. And I'm lost. I can find the camshaft position sensor, but I couldn't find what to do. Mike, literally, he goes, oh yeah, I know what to do. He sends me a PDF of the 400 page service manual. And he goes, I'm going to have one on a list tomorrow, I'll send you a picture. Fortunately, that night I was able to replace it. $15 part at uh, AutoZone, but it got the car running again. And it was easy to do once I found the part. It was a little hard to get to. He was so helpful because I, I have a buddy at the gym who has a Gen 2, and he gave me another Viper Mechanics number first. And that guy, he wasn't really helpful. Like, he was like, oh, super easy. It's like changing your oil, which clearly was like a jab at, like, you should be able to do this. And I'm like, bro, I can't find the sensor. Like, I was, I'm brand new to this car. It's on the rear side, but. Mike helped me, and, and because of Mike's help, I was able to do it that night. And Mike, I appreciate that so much. I got the car running, and I got to get that. Yeah, you're saying the camaraderie between people that work on their cars. It's awesome because I do so much work at Eric's house, mainly because he's got the awesome race deck floor and quick jack, <laughs> but mainly because he is the most knowledgeable now, maybe the second most on this call. But he is the most knowledgeable guy I know working on cars. He puts engines in other cars. He can do everything. And so I won't deny that if I have anything big to do, I'm coming to Eric's house to do it. I just That's trust fine. him to help just me. Just give me a and, call. And, like I said, I want to add a Viper to my resume, whether I own one or work on one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it on there. So it's all good, right? <laughs> Well, that cool. you, said, want to, you want to do some control arms with me? Hey, man. I'm not I trying to pay the, the shop. Got, they quoted me 1200 in labor. <laughs> I got the presses, man. I just did a set they of Volkswagen ones the other day. They quoted you $1,200 thousand, for labor. Uh, 1000 for the labor, $800 for each control arm, not the sway bar in length. And they gave me a printout because, once again, I bought this car. The guy said it was perfect. We get it on the lift and there's oil 
everywhere coming from the control arm. So I contacted, he's a super rich guy in Florida that had like a bunch of Ferraris and I talked to him and he's like, he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, man. Like he offered to help me with the cost of getting that repair. So I told my buddy to send me a, a quote. So he might have told them to, you know, quote it, whatever the maximum price was. But I think it's fair to say that as much as I trust them, I, I don't think I want to shell out the it would be eighteen hundred to get that done. That yeah, might be something. If, if Eric, if you think you're up for it, that would be something to do at your house. Let's, let's do a little home. A let's do a little order, homework. We'll talk about this with Mike offline. Right? It's easy. <laughs> he goes, it's easy. Okay. It's yeah, easy. Yeah, just, yeah. Well, we'll do just, that later. Beer, beers sure. and foods on me. <laughs> just make sure when you guys get the wheel alignment done, you get it done in a reputable place, specifically those like Gen 3, Gen 4 cars. If you get it done at a Dodge dealership, they actually strap the car down and add driver and passenger weight to the car and do the wheel alignment that way. And that's why the wheel alignments are usually like 200 bucks. Oh, so, interesting. Okay. So you can do the work and then you just got to do the alignment afterwards. Somewhere Correct. Reputable. That's easy enough. So that's not too bad. Just make sure they have an actual Viper tech and one that actually knows how to open the hood. That's the true test. I know this guy named I know this guy named Mike. I don't know if he's good for it, but the reason I was asking about you know how hard are they to work on and how how easy are they to work on is that in my imagination, coming from Shelby's pen, right, and, and yep. with his influence in this, it's probably very race car like in some of its setup, which means certain pieces like the suspension, like you said, it's held on by two bolts. That's very much like, hey, I need to be able to change this over the pit wall, you know, at Le Mans in 30 seconds and get the driver back out on track, you know, that kind of thing. So if there's a lot of that type of engineering involved in the Viper, for me, that's not intimidating. That to me signals, this is actually easier to work on than your standard production car where everything's jammed in there because you're trying to maximize people space or, or whatever it is, or maybe it's over-engineered like some other vehicles are. So is that true or, is, or am I on the well, wrong path? One thousand percent, ninety percent of the stuff you can need to fix. If you would need to fix it, you could fix it at the track, right? Like if you had to do an oil pan gasket at the track, you could do it there. Like it's not that hard. I mean, on the Gen threes, spark plug wires, they put them underneath the intake manifold, which is rather annoying. You know, that's probably the more difficult things to do. But it's really just pull the intake and then do the wires there. Overall, you can fix most things to the track, right? Like it's a simple two bolt design on the coilovers. Control arms are three bolts or it's two bolts and a ball joint. So it's nothing like crazy. They're easy to get to. It's easy to pull off. Wheel bearings, at least on the later gens, are all just bolted in. So it's you can swap them out pretty quick. You know, it's the Brembo style calipers. So you just pop the pads in and out like you can. So there was a lot of things like that that they did do. So you could do those things on the track if you need. Go ahead. Speaking of the track, I would love to know what you think needs to be checked. Because when I first started getting my car, I saw that Boxster and Evo, 335i, a bunch of like, you know, fun cars and it was really not until eric and i's mutual friend sam he had a uh, a blue wrx fti that he started tracking before he got his fe racer you know i had a white evo he had the blue subaru we went to the same gym saw each other every day eventually it's like you're the, or, you're the evo you're the subaru and, you know we ended up talking about it. he got me to track and for five years now i've been doing all the uh, you know de events that and so on what would i need to check on this because i can't own this and not take it to the track at least once but when i was under there I saw a lot of, it was a Florida car, 15 year old Dodge product. There's a lot of stuff in the suspension components that at least that I see that needs some, you know, repair. I would love to know what you recommend and maybe, you know, I'll bring it in sometime. We can run it over and give me the okay. One other side question is the transmission. I know they're all the Tremex, they're pretty bulky. I notice a lot of like floppiness. 
I'm in third, fourth, and I get on the gas, get off, I can hear like it's a metal on metal in there. And, you know, 20,000 miles, 15 years old, had five owners, and I'm sure they beat on it. I don't know if it needs a new clutch or if that's just, there is some play in that transmission. It's just one thing that worries me because I don't want, you know, you can fix everything on the track except for the transmission. Yeah, that would well, be a, uh, a, that'd be a bad one, but you know, not the end of the world. It could be fluids. It could be the throwout bearing could be going bad in it. That's like kind of typical with the older age on almost all the generations too. the throwout bearings wear out. But if you're going to be doing track stuff, you, of course you want to check over your shocks. You know, they're probably original. So they, there's a good chance they might be leaking. Check your wheel bearings, check your ball joints, control arms, sway bar links, make sure all the suspension stuff looks good. All your brakes looks good. Brake fluids probably never been changed power steering fluids probably never been changed the big thing on your car that i actually had an issue today is on the some of the gen 3s the crank bolt can back out so make sure you torque that thing down because like today i was picking up a customer car and i get to the shop and i hear this squeaking well the crank bolt started to back itself out pulling the pulley off the crank which would be very bad you can do a lot of damage that way so like check over those things make sure the oil's topped off yeah i mean you're all your basic well, track stuff i don't want to speak for eric but eric i'd love if we could do a road trip hop in eric you drive the viper up we'll visit mike check out the shop we'll get that thing up there and uh get it track ready hopefully Get it inspected. For and actually, that, that's a really great segue that you brought this up, Andrew. So Mike, if you were looking at Andrew's Viper and it needs yeah. new shocks or it needs new this or new that, are there certain mods that he should be thinking about making that you know aren't outrageous, like the stuff we were talking about? Oh, we're going to throw cams in it, do headers yeah. and all this kind of stuff. The way I look at it and the way I was brought up was if you're going to replace a factory part, try to find a racier part or a higher quality part because A, it's going to last you longer on the street. It's going to give you maybe a different ride or a different feel you're looking for. But is is there something about the Viper where you're like, you know, you should really consider modding this if you were going to track it or autocross it or something like that? Just solely due to the age, I would replace those coilovers. It's your entry level coilover, like a BC coilover will run you probably at 14, 1500 for the set. Again, that's entry level. You can go crazy. Like I just ordered a set of Penske's for like six grand for a customer's part today. You can really go all over can... the place. The bushings and the control arms are probably old and maybe cracked and dry rotted you can upgrade those with delran bushings like you push the old bushings out you put the delrans in and between that and new shocks it transforms the way that car handles it's totally a different animal and it's amazing like a close friend of mine slash car that we kind of sponsor he's really big into autocross it's got penske racing shocks on it delran bushings all the way around on all four corners and he races the balls off this thing weekend after weekend at every autocross event he can driving that car versus a stock car is mind-blowingly different first thing i noticed maybe in the the last one I drove, that one did have leaky shocks. This one, the shocks aren't leaking, but you know, I go over the speed bumps in my neighborhood and I hear creaky noises and stuff. I uh, I noticed the car tram lines like nothing I've ever felt before. I remember my first time coming off an exit ramp, obviously pushing a little bit, coming onto the highway, no cars, but it pulled me. I get yep. in the second lane, it pulled me back into the first lane. Like, oh shit, there's something breaking. I'm ready to like saw the wheel and like save it. I was like, oh no, that's just following the lines of the road, which 345, they grab, they grab yes, everything. They, they, they pull you all over the place and it's something to get used to. I mean, I had the Lotus with no stability or traction control and 190 horsepower, 1400 less pounds, but this thing, it's a different beast and it, I've never driven anything like it as much as it's pretty easy to handle. You know, I'm going to wait until I get it on the track before I make my full judgment. Here. So, 
if you change out the suspension and the tires, 95% of that tram railing will go away. I figured the yeah, suspension's probably overdue. 15 years is probably about time, which it's, I'm sure that I could go five years of street driving this and not have to do it, but I want to yeah. drive this car for what it was meant to do. So earlier I asked you, what was the best Viper if you were buying your first one? But mm-hmm. what's the best if you're buying a track or performance weekend warrior type of Viper? What would you recommend for somebody that wanted to do more spirited driving? Personally, if I was going to go buy a Viper that I was going to dedicate to track use, I'd probably look into like a Gen 3 that was possibly an R-type because you can pick them up for cheaper, which means you can throw the work that you need into it to make it outperform everything else on the track. Now, again, we're not talking talking like ACR level here. Like if you go out and buy a 2017 ACR, you throw that thing at any track, any autocross track, it's going to be a monster. There's almost no competing with it when you have what the rear wings on those things have like 1700 pounds of downforce or... I think with full gills removed and all the vents over the wheels, it'll generate over 3,000 pounds of downforce or something like that. Yep. So, are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. With, with I, I know I remember seeing a forum post about a guy trailering his car to the track and he was getting five less miles per gallon because he had his ACR on the back of an open trailer and the downforce just on the highway from that was throwing things off like crazy. Well, over a thousand pounds of down. That's that's and wild. It is insane being in one of those cars, right? Like my a buddy of mine bought one directly from the factory. <laughs> we were on our way home, you know, in Mexico, of course. He broke like a little over a hundred, and you just feel the car squat. He hits like one twenty, and it's almost like the car is slowing down because there's so much downforce that yes it's accelerating but it's not doing what it was doing from the 80 to 120 at that point so it's just wild to feel so this is a great opportunity for me to tell a little story as we transition to my next thought andrew mentioned earlier about his excursion in an acr with the gentleman from our organization that owns a 2017 (laughs) supposedly the story is he bought one of the last ones you know it's got his name on it and all this fun stuff and beautiful car it's a black with green stripes and i've had the privilege of riding in it several times. And the first time I got to ride in it was at Watkins Glen. You know, we were just there not long ago, uh, you and I together. And so it reminded me of that story. And so, you know, every opportunity I can get to ride in a different car, especially as a coach, I will obviously take it because I want to learn about the car and, you know, see how people are driving and all that. So I've ridden with this gentleman many, many times. He's gotten some private coaching now. He's come a long way on his journey to, you know, where he is. And now he has his Viper. We get out there and, you know, he already had it, everything on coupled we'll call it that right so full down force ready to go and i'm looking at this thing hey it's on street tires whatever we pull out <laughs> of pit lane which is really long at the glen and he's like hey man i tell you right away i gotta let this car warm up before we can really go fast and i'm like we're already like hauling ass okay <laughs> and then i'm like i'm like cool all right it's all good you know and i've had an ex- i've had an experience with this car throughout the weekend and i'm with my, at this time i'm there with my m3 race car the closing rate of the viper you'd look in your rearview mirror there's nobody there and two seconds later he was brushing his teeth in your rearview mirror you're like <laughs> he was teleported there but you know which was his closing speed so now i'm in the car and he's like all right we gotta let it warm up you know this kind of thing we're still we're booking and i'm like wow this thing is a rocket ship so we come around the second full lap and he's like all right we're gonna we're gonna open it up now i'm like we're gonna open it up (laughs) so we get from from turn two to the bus stop i mean we're at a buck and a half in fourth gear in like no time and he goes by the way this is over the chatterbox he's like i've been told i need to maintain 150 mile an hour maximum so he'd hit 150 and then he would just lift his foot, right? Because his closing rate was so big compared to everybody else. 
And I'm like, dude, I'm not understanding. I mean, we're, we're hauling butt. He goes, you're going to understand in a second. We go into the bus stop and he lifts his foot and he doesn't even break. And the car just basically flies in there. Like <laughs> now at like a buck 20 or whatever, we're going to die. Right. I'm like, There's no way we are making it out the other side. Cause he's coming in. Like I'm in a, in a Honda civic, like full out. Right. And I'm like, bro. And he's like, just hang on. And he, he just quickly jabs the wheel and then gets back on the throttle and the car just like absorbs itself into the asphalt. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And I start laughing. Right. And he's just like, he's like giggling a little bit as he's driving. And then he finally had to hit the brakes and turn six. Right. Because he's like, Oh, I can't go through here this fast. So he gets on the brakes and it's like freaking anti-gravity. And I'm like, Holy cow. And then back on the throttle and away we go. And we're just like reeling in cars, like left and right at every lap faster and faster and faster i've never been in a car that can get around the glen in sub two minutes you know not even with a professional driver behind the wheel i mean that's how good this acr was it was mind-blowingly fast and i walked away from the car and he's like so what do you think i look around the paddock you change my depends real quick uh, yeah (laughs) after that but i'm like y'all can keep all of this stuff all of it (laughs) because the viper is like king and it's one of those things that i don't think even me telling the story people will believe until you experience so what i'm trying to tell you is if you get a chance to ride in a late gen viper do it do not hesitate to do it because it's amazing if you trust the driver yes that's 100 (laughs) percent true i gotta put that in perspective of motorsport a little bit the viper came on the scene best 90s car built in the 80s to compete against what so if we look at that time period you're looking at 960 Oh, wait. Well, no, you still have. Yeah, this not C- back then. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. C4 Corvette and the ZR1 didn't come out until 1995. And that's when the Gen 2 Vipers were starting to come on the scene. You had the 964 from Porsche. You had a couple of Ferraris that weren't anything to write home about. And maybe a couple other oddball things like, oh, yeah, the Jaguar XJ220, you know, random stuff like that that was in that hy- what we would consider hypercar genre now. So the Viper didn't really have any competition until later. And Corvette steps in and ups their game big time, especially with the C5 and C6Rs. So there's been a huge battle over the years, huge rivalry between Dodge and Chevy when it came to that world. I don't know that anybody else really appreciated it as much as some of the rest of us did. Because the Porsche guys are like, ah, whatever. We're just going to build a faster 911 and move the engine closer to the driver every year. It'll, <laughs> it'll be perfect. Don't worry about it. I wonder, you know, as fans of the Viper, how did we feel about the rivalry? And did the Corvette finally beat the Viper in the end? I mean, let's discount the mid-engine Corvette for a minute and let's maybe compare the C6 and C7 to the ACR. I don't know. I've been in all of those cars. And to this day, I know I'm a little bit biased, but those ACRs are another animal, like you're saying. Ungodly, an average driver can get behind the wheel of one of those things and kill it at a track. The way the downforce and everything else feels, it's just so hard to compete against. And with all the track records it broke, and I know the Corvette beat some of them, but it's just a whole nother animal in comparison. Plus, Corvettes do what? 30,000 cars a year? That's how many Vipers are on the road. They did 32,000 from 92 to 17. So like, it just a whole different animal as far as rarity goes, which then gives them that allure. So I had a C6 Grand Sport, first car I took to the track, which 
pretty comparable to this. I mean, it didn't make the same power, but it was very analog. It didn't have as many driver controls. I had a C7 Z51, which that thing drove for you. It was too easy to drive. And this requires attention. So did the C6, but I, I didn't have it. I've never owned a Z. I know the Zs on paper will beat them with everything except for maybe road holding and a hundred to zero. Like you said, they, they make the same amount for a year of Corvettes that they've made total of the Vipers, which was another reason. I mean, I've always wanted one of these same thing poster on the wall when I was in <laughs> high school. And I've always, you know, always need to have, and I don't care if they're a little bit faster. It's, you know, the exclusivity, I guess, is a, is a draw. And also the V10. I mean, you don't get that in a lot of domestic cars. There isn't many that aren't trucks that have V10s and put this kind of power down. We're going to talk about the truck. I promised we wouldn't. I hinted to it earlier. I want to close out this thought about the Viper itself. We joke about this on the drive-thru and Brad's brought it up several times. Do you know there are still new Vipers that are unsold at Chrysler dealerships throughout the United States? You can buy a brand new 2017 ACR off the dealer lot today. God knows what the markup is. but How much? Still- they're still out there. They're a lot. What I'm getting at is, you know, the Viper was sunset now five, six years ago at this point. We're closing in on, right? If you think about, you know, they announced that they were closing out the production run in 16 to say, hey, we're going to have a few 17s and then that's going to be it. We're done. No more Vipers. End of story. Get it now while sales are hot. Then Fiat sort of hinted there's going to be a resurgence of the Viper. They talked about a V8 powered Viper. And I'm like, oh, where they're borrowing a Ferrari motor, there's going to be some Maserati concoction that they're going to come up with. It'll probably look awesome, but you know that never happened either. And now Chrysler has been absorbed into Stellantis, right? The Borg, right? They are <laughs> the fourth largest auto manufacturer on the planet now, but we still don't it's know gonna... what's happening over there, right? They've talked recently about sunsetting the Hemi, because of the, the evolution, right? The EV revolution, they've talked about, hey, this is it, party's over for the Challenger and the Charger as we know them today. But it still brings up the question, what about the Viper? Everybody seems to be building a supercar right now, whether it's an EV or otherwise, I think it's time to reintroduce. Hellcat engine, they're going to put it in there. They put it in the minivan. They're going to put it in a Viper. There you go. Viper with the Hellcat engine. I mean, I hope they don't, but one of my favorite memes that I've definitely shared with Eric and the guys is like <laughs> all the other car brands, you know, they're like, oh, how do we make our cars more fuel efficient? And then it's a uh, Dodge dealers do a line of coke, stripper's <laughs> ass, and uh, let's throw a Hellcat in a minivan. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> When it comes to like the future of it, I don't know if they would be able to bring back a all electric Viper and be able to call it a Viper. And like, I don't know if the diehards would, would buy it if you put it under the Viper name. Like if they brought a supercar back and made it look like a Viper, but named it something else, I think it would be a lot more accepted. The Viper at the end of the day, they wanted to make it raw or it needed to be a manual. It needed to have the V10. And, and those were its needs. And that was why they built them the way they built them. So if they came out with something like an all electric Viper or something along those lines, you know, I'd worry that it would come out looking like the electric Mustang. Like that's not a it mistake would, to me. It would dilute the brand name too, or the, yeah. you know, the model name in and, some way. But And this is something we bring up often, which is important, which is also why we don't refer to the Mach-E <laughs> <laughs> as the Mustang Mach-E because they're, it's a Ford Escape, but we'll, we'll leave that where it yes. is. But the, <laughs> the, the, name, the name Viper, just like Cobra or even 911 and other things, mm-hmm. if you put that on something else, 
it just changes the whole dynamic. So I guess you just have to sunset it. And to your point, I often wondered, yes, I get the purest side of the Viper, but would the Viper have been that much better with some sort of double clutch PDK system, you know, maybe borrowed from Mercedes or developed by Porsche or something like that to really squeeze out Corvette and, and some of these other, you know, supercars that are still around? They probably would have sold more Vipers. It pains me to say it if they made them an automatic. If you can put your golf clubs in the back and make it an automatic, they probably would have sold <laughs> Two sets, of course. Yeah. Two <laughs> As sets is of the Corvette clubs. standard, two yes. sets of golf clubs. <laughs> and that's why, like, I hate to say it, but that's why, in my opinion, the Corvettes sell more because it's not like they're easier to work on. Where it's... do you put the golf clubs in the C8? I just want to bring that up real quick. Front trunk, back trunk. Actually, I know they said they could do two, right? That was that was their whole thing. I, I don't know why that's always a selling point, but it that, can fit too. That was rhetorical. That was rhetorical, Andrew. I just want to point that. <laughs> you put one in the passenger seat, one in the passenger seat next to you with the roof off, and then uh, one there in we the go. Back, there we go. You know, back truck. I worry that if they did bring something back, I don't know if they would name it the Viper. There was, you know, there's always rumors and there's always rumors from the higher ups and Chrysler and everything else that come to some of the events. It's like, oh, like, well, if you could build a Viper, like, what would you guys be willing to give up? Would it be the V10? Would it be the stick? Would it be rear wheel drive? Would it be mid engine? You know, what are those things to give up? And that's what gives us some hope that they would bring back something with how all the EV is going and everything else. I don't know if they'd be able to bring back a Viper and be able to sell it underneath the Viper brand name and have the support and dedication that the current owners have for the car. And we saw hints of that were beyond the grapevine rumors. There was a gentleman that had a bespoke Ferrari built that was very Viper-like in its look. We actually talked about it on the drive through episodes earlier in, I think, season one it was that we brought that up and we thought that was really interesting. We're like, wait, is this foreshadowing by way of Ferrari, you know, part of now the parent company Stellantis owns all of this stuff, which has also jogged my thoughts to say, this is the opportunity for Alfa Romeo to make a comeback with a Viper-like vehicle. Let's not call it a Viper, but that would be their opportunity to introduce a hyper sports car or something like that, you know, along these lines, it would make sense. There's been rumors there too, that they want to bring back the GTV. What's that going to look like? What's that going to be? You know, that's traditionally been a two-door sports car, you know, stuff like that. So maybe there's a chance, but I wonder the timing is right, but maybe not the formula to your point, right? It's not a Viper as we know it. And I think once like supercars and stuff do start coming out, I think they'll be able to build something along those lines, but it's going to be pretty hard, at least at first to bring the camaraderie back into having an electric car. Cause most of these guys are like, I want all gas all the time. Like I don't want an electric car. They don't make noise They, you know, it's the diehard fans of when you buy a Viper, you're buying it because it's this raw machine. And now you're going to go out and buy an electric car that yeah, it's fast, but you're, you're losing some of that. So that might be hard to sell. Yeah. And when everybody's grocery getter can do zero to 60 in sub three seconds, I mean, what do you need a yeah. supercar for? Right. So it comes down to styling at that point, it comes down to amenities interior, but to your point, the sound, the one of the things about the Viper, even compared to an R8 or a Lamborghini, mm-hmm. which basically leverage the same V10, yep. the Viper has a distinct sound. I, I bring it back to those old days of the screaming Audi Quattros because it sounds more like an Audi than it does 
you know, a V10 Lamborghini or anything like that. So that's part of that experience is that sound. And I mean, obviously you both can attest to that. It's, it's unique and it's, it's absolutely amazing. So two more pieces of Viper, let's say lore or part of the Viper culture. We hinted at it several times is the Viper truck. So Mike, do you end up working on those two? What's the deal with the Viper truck? So they're actually pretty cool. <laughs> I've had a couple at my shop here and there. It is actually the same motor that's in Andrew's car behind you. And the two doors were stick. The four doors were automatic. They're pretty cool trucks. It's badass to say, yeah, I've got a Viper motor in my truck and it'll, you know, roast the tires because there's no weight in the rear. So that aspect of things is cool. I actually work with a guy not too far from me that specializes in the Viper, in the Viper trucks. He specializes in those trucks. So usually we work together and I send him some stuff that way if I have to work on the Viper trucks, but he calls me for any of the performance stuff sometimes. So it's one of those things where they're sweet. I would definitely rock one to drive it around. I mean, listen, trucks always get terrible gas mileage. So why not drive around with a big V10? Like that's pretty badass. But you know, I mean, it competes against things like that SVT Lightning and let's build these low low rider trucks essentially that can go fast instead of now everything jumps. Specs wise, you know, same motor power plant as that Gen 3 <laughs> Viper that Andrew has. They built those in very low numbers, right? Only for like maybe a year or two? I believe it was 05 and 06. There may have been 2004. I'm not very well versed as far as the Viper truck yeah. aspect of things go. It's not. It's a cool piece of nostalgia, right? And yeah. if you think about it, the marketing campaign was brilliant because they literally sold it as the Viper truck. And yeah. when it debuted, there was a Viper on a trailer being pulled by the Viper pickup. And I just ultimate. thought, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's pretty cool, especially color matching blue with the white stripes, you know, that classic yep. iconic Viper look. Although for me, it's still the three spoke wheels and the red Targa, but you know, we'll leave that where it is. <laughs> but that actually leads me into probably one of the most brilliant, if not conceived by Chrysler, but in partnership ad campaigns ever, which was the probably long forgotten by a lot of our audience, if they even saw it in the first place, which is NBC's show called Viper, which debuted yep. in the 90s and was basically a redo of Knight Rider. It had the same storyline. I hate to say I binged all 80 episodes. I wrote an article about this. You can search for it on our website. I thought season one was amazing. And that is actually really what cemented it for me to really fall in love with the Vipers, bringing that kind of Knight Rider forward because I got to see the Viper on the regular. I got to hear it. It was on adventures. It was doing all that cool stuff. But what I thought was neat was there was a lot of foreshadowing in that. And it was really smart on the part of Chrysler. And I pointed this out in the, in the article too. There were a lot of Chrysler prototypes in various episodes of the show, parked along the side of the road, strategically placed in scenes of the show where, you know, they fly in with the Viper sideways and jump out. And you're like, wait, what's that uh, Chrysler Espresso in the background there? You know, weird concept car that they were trying to make look futuristic because the show was supposed to be set somewhere, somewhere in the future. What I also thought was really unique is they also sneak peek the GTS on that show. If you watch, I believe it was like season two-ish or so, there's a blue GTS coupe during a traffic stop where there's a bunch of you know typical Chrysler Intrepids blocking traffic and this blue coupe is just sitting there and then the Viper team shows up and it's just kind of in the background and you don't pay mm -hmm. too much attention to it. You're like, because now we all realize, oh, the, the GTS is the thing. But back then you're like, holy crap, what is this? Right. Yeah. This is pretty cool. Part of our petrol heads of a certain age. Right. And so we grew up with the show and then it disappeared and whatnot. So what's what are your guys thoughts on it? So ironically enough, I've only seen actually a couple episodes. So <sighs> to put this in perspective, yeah, I, I, was, seen, I was I haven't seen any. 
I was born the same year the Viper came out. All through the 90s, I was like a young kid. It's a treat, let me tell you. All right, well, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to download it or find it on Hulu or some crap yeah. and watch all of them. You let me know what the best episode is. I'll watch the best. Season episode. one is actually the best. And I'll be honest with you guys. The show was technically canceled at the end of season one. But then I don't know who petitioned. I got to go back into my my lore and trivia there. Seasons two and three were brought back with a different cast. And then season four, they actually brought back the original actors and the original cast. And that's actually really good to kind of bookend it. If you watch seasons one and season four, I have all of them, by the way, I can hook you guys up oh, uh, to check it out. It's it's absolutely amazing. But what was also cool about that, aside of all the things they had to do to build the Defender, which was, you know, Kit, let's call it that. They spent so much money in the first season just on CGI. And this was cutting edge CGI to do this transformation of, you know, a stock volume into the defender on screen in real time they said it, every time they did it it cost them like you know 100 grand or something to do the cgi it was nuts later they made it really cheesy and, and you know and then they eventually went back to that as computers got better and less expensive and all that kind of stuff but even there the idea of this viper coupe in the form of the defender you kind of look at it and go this is a thing this is possible and i wonder if that inspired chrysler or if they already knew they were going to go with the cobra and then the Daytona Cobra, right? And I'm, you know, who decided, or Lee just said, we're going to do this. If it worked for Pontiac, it's got to work for Chrysler. It's got to work <laughs> for Dodge, right? So it's it's kind of it's it's kind of cheesy and corny when you look back over it, but it's also somewhat awesome at the same time. And some of the tech and the things that were there. And so I recommend it if you haven't seen it. But I'll hook you guys up. You got to check it out. If nothing right. else, check out the article on our website to get a fast forward on all that. And I tell you what, I've mentioned it before. If I had to own one Hollywood car, it would be a defender and by the way really? folks, yes and and reason being they were built on actual vipers so if there's low numbers out there there's cars that are missing they're hollywood cars and they didn't use like some old chevy nova and make it sound like a viper they were actually built on top of production vipers so kind of cool kind of cool you know a couple of those thirty-two thousand are still out there in hollywood running around so as the defender as the defender yeah the Defender's pretty, pretty badass. It's not an ugly car at all. It kind of looks like a <laughs> like a Gen Four, Gen Five Viper in some you know at certain angles, especially the tail lights and the nose and stuff like it with the thinner headlights. You know, I kind of see it was like foreshadowing of what the Viper could be in the future, right? Hey, but I mean, they definitely took some of the design cues, right? And the story there is the Defender was actually developed by a famous company that does like movie cars, right? It would develop mm-hmm. all these like specialty cars. And so it was their design built on top of that Viper chassis. So I thought that was really kind of cool that somebody had the ingenuity to say, well, we could take this, we could make it sleek and, you know, make it a coupe and do all these kinds of things. And it's really neat. And it's still, like you mentioned, it still looks good today. Although it's still yeah. had the three spoke wheels. Well, I guess you like them, huh? Uh, just a little bit. I mean, you know. <laughs> I, I like them for what they are. That's the only thing on those cars that date them. It's very true, but it's very unique. It's a it very, very Viper unique. thing. No other car has a three-spoke wheel that looks like that. You know, not That's even the true. smart cars with their three bolt wheels. But uh, <laughs> I also hear they're really hard to get tires for because it's a unique size, it's like a 16 by something bizarre. Yep. The early 335 or something like that. I, I saw on the forums when I was looking it up. Yeah, if you try to find them, you have to buy them used or they do group buys for the people who have those cars because they don't manufacture them. So you got to find 
used ones or old ones, which is wild. So before we wrap up and kind of close up, I have a pit stop like question to ask you, Mike, because we've geeked out here for, you know, over an hour about Vipers. We're all over the map and talking about really fun stuff and stories. But I got to ask, is the Viper the sexiest car of all time, in your opinion? Ooh. I love the Viper, but lately, pains me to say this, and I'm sure plenty of people will be pissed about it. Lately, I've been loving the new Porsche GT4. I still love the Viper. Like, I think the ACR is like one of the sexiest cars like I've ever seen. Going back to those old GTSRs, like I think they're gorgeous cars. I think it's definitely up there, but I, the Porsches are starting to grow a spot in my heart because I fit in them and they look good and they're pretty quick. So since you get to work with Vipers on the regular, maybe you get a little desensitized to them and that's fine. 1,000%. Oh, yeah. So, you know, if I asked you the question, if you had a three car garage and unlimited funds, what would you fill it with? Anything but a Viper, what would it be? Ooh, anything but a Viper. Yeah, you're, because you, you, you've already you deal with them on the regular. So is that really fair? <laughs> I, I guess you're right. I would get new GT4. I'd have to get like a truck. Like I'd want a, like a Dodge Dually. And I would probably get some badass, I don't know, maybe like a newer M3 to daily drive. That is ugliest car <laughs> of all time. I love this question. Who ugliest car. PC Cruiser with the wood grain. Oh, man. That's up. That's a I'm Dodge Breaking Bad when they give when they give Walt Jr. his, uh, he gets the uh, Challenger and then uh, they take it back and give him PC Cruiser. And uh, in case you need another reason to hate Skylar, most hateable woman on all TV, <laughs> it's because she got on the TT cruiser. <laughs> uh, that Aztec does something to me. <laughs> like, I don't know why, who thought that was a great design, but it's not for me. <laughs> All right. So as we close out, one final thought, Mike, you mentioned several times, you know, as a now longtime member of the Viper Club and Viper Owners Association, et cetera, you know, one of their slogans is come for the cars, but stay for the people. Do you want to talk about the Viper Club and, and why Andrew should join or why someone else should join? You know, what's it all about? So really, it's all about at the end of the day, the camaraderie, right? Like I've got guys that have bought cars, bought Vipers, didn't get involved and then ended up selling the cars a couple of years later because they weren't going out with other guys. They weren't doing stuff with the car. So they're like, well, I'm just going to sell it. And then you have guys that join the clubs that get involved and go out to all these events and get to meet all these great people and just have a blast. You've got Viper guys that have millions of dollars and you've got guys that are blue collar, like just got their dream car, like love it. Don't have a ton of money, but love their car. You can all hang out in the same room together and you would never guess who was who. Everyone is Modesty. humble. They're super modest. And I've gone, you know, I mean, we've gone to track days and everything else. And you meet guys in Ferrari clubs and Porsche clubs. And some of them are hoity-toity in other clubs. Whereas like in the Viper Club, I've only met a hand few of guys that were like ever really true like dickheads in the viper club it's one of those things where you just meet so many great people and have such a good time at every event you go to if you can get involved get involved and you know i mean it's at the end of the day you make the most of whatever your situation is if you want to get involved to come do stuff you're going to have a blast there's no way you're not going to have fun and if you don't want to go do stuff that's fine i joke all the time and i'm pretty active in our area and I run a lot of events and it's so hard to get people to get off their couch to have fun with us. Like if I'm not calling <laughs> them during the week saying, Hey, like we're going to this event, it's a car cruise and we're going to go do a tour of Yingling and like hang out and have lunch. They don't show up. It's like, guys, come out, have a good time. And the guys that come, Oh, it was so much fun. And then everyone online gets upset that they didn't go. You know, it's one of those things where if you can get involved, 
get involved and do it. Like I was just down at in Miami last year for a national Viper event. There was like 200 Vipers down in Miami. We did a track day. We did dinners. We did all sorts of stuff. Did you drive your Viper down there? So no, I was, I played support vehicle and fixed cars going on my way down. Nice. But I did have the opportunity, a customer, or a friend of mine was like, we went to the track day and I just was going to hang out and ride bitch. He's like, Oh, you're driving today. Here's the keys and take it out of the track. Have fun. Oh, okay. Well, good friend. I'm in. So <laughs> like I've gotten to do some things like that. And that's where the benefit of working on these and being trusted with them. You just meet so many good people that it just, it's crazy. The amount of nice guys that you meet and the other, like not opportunities, but like, there's just so many different cool things you get to go and see and do. And again, all through like the camaraderie of the car. I've been in other car clubs and stuff and none of them have ever been like anything I've experienced with the Viper Owners Association. I think to the point, if you can't afford a Viper and the Viper is still on your dream list as your dream car you've been salivating after, there's mm-hmm. some really excellent alternatives from the, the Hemi Chargers to you know the Scat Packs and all the Challengers and all these different types of things that are on some of the other models. I mean, they're obviously making more horsepower than the Viper in some respects, especially the Demon at a yep. thousand horsepower and all that craziness that's going on there. Dodge made some really cool stuff. And I think the Viper gave way to them being at the front end of modern muscle cars. Because when you look at the entries by Ford and even by Chevy, and, and let's discount the Corvette because it's it's really achieved supercar status now they can hang their hat on saying we revolutionize the modern muscle car. And, and I got to tip my hat to them. And, I, and like I said, I think the Viper gave way to that. And I think what you're doing at Havoc by keeping these cars engaged, keeping their owners engaged, maintaining these collections, working with these folks at the national level, going to these track events and, and bringing Viper enthusiasm, not just motorsports enthusiasm, but about this particular brand to the surface is awesome. And that's why we get excited about it. And folks like Andrew and I can geek out with you for over an hour about these cars so you know i gotta say in closing mike i think this has been awesome maybe it was a little hard to follow for some folks but if you're a viper owner or maybe you're a viper fan hopefully you learned something from this episode but i'll leave you with this if you want to learn more about Havoc Performance, check out their website at www.havocperformance.com or follow them on Facebook and Instagram or email Mike directly at Mike at HavocPerformance.com because he's got all your answers, everything you want to know, everything you want to look for. Super personal guy, super knowledgeable. So we thank you for coming on the show. I think this has been absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate it. What, I loved coming on and doing this. What's that Instagram blast. handle? Havoc Performance. Okay. It's all, havoc, it's all Havoc it's Performance. It's all Havoc Performance. But again, if anyone ever has any questions, and same thing with you guys, if you have any questions, but I'm definitely dragging your asses out for our Snakes on the Mountain event. Ooh. So make sure your Hell car yeah. is ready. It's basically a private event. We do it usually at a guy's house that has a car collection, so you get to see that as well. But it's Performance Ford, so like Ford GTs, Cobras, Shelby stuff. Vipers will invite like Trackhawks and Demons and stuff will come. And then it's also Ferraris, and it's a competition between the three. Last year, I had almost 40 Vipers show up. And where is, is, where is this at? Is this at Pocono or where this is this helmet? Is, uh, it's uh, about 20 minutes from my house, depending on whose place we're doing it at. This year, we're going to do it over in like Saucon Valley, over near Lehigh college so it's more of like a hill climb mountain run type of deal think of it like private cars and coffee right i got you like hang out we usually do a car cruise afterwards and lunch you know we show up at like nine o'clock hang out till like 11 go do a 
car cruise for an hour, hour and a half, stop and get lunch usually around one, two o'clock when the places are slow. And uh, then everyone either goes on their way or we go do something else. You guys that sounds like a blast. All right. All right, boys, take it easy. All right. Hey, it was fun. Hey, have a good night. Thanks again. <laughs> That's right, listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our Patreon for a follow-on Pit Stop mini-sode. So check that out on www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports and get access to all sorts of behind-the-scenes content from this episode and more. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization. And our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, Gummy Bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.